Welcome to the National Capital Bible Church, our Bible class. We are in the book of Job, and even though we anticipated uh, snow this week, we dodged that bullet, and we're uh, in business, I guess you could say. As we begin, as we always begin, we we know that we must be in fellowship. We must have the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, to assist us in our spiritual life. And in order to do that, we always take a few seconds for spiritual preparation. Spiritual preparation, confession of sins, but also for pushing aside the pressures of the day and resting in the text of Scripture or in the doctrines that we'll be studying. So let's take just a few seconds, closing our eyes and bowing our heads, and then I will open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this day, each and every day that you you provide for us. We're thankful that one of the, the main reasons that we are on this earth is to serve you, to worship you, to remember that you are our God, the God of the universe, the only God. But you are more than the God of the universe. You are our personal God. And we're thankful, Father, that uh, you have made yourself aware to us. We know who you are from the word of God. Help us to remember that as our personal God, you have a desire to have a relationship with us. And we're thankful, Father, that you've made that possible through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who went to the cross to pay for the, for the sins of the entire world. And it's on that basis we have the opportunity for eternal life and imputed righteousness. And it is the imputed righteousness of Christ that makes that relationship possible. We pray, Father, that... Uh, if there's anyone who is uh, unaware the way that we attain this relationship, it's simply by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Redeemer, and it's through Him that we have that relationship. Father, we're thankful for the many promises that you have given us in the Word of God. And tonight, as we begin, we remember in Psalm 27 that... The Lord is my light and my deliverance. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And we finish that chapter by simply saying, Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he will strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. So we're thankful, Father, that you have given us these promises that 
you are our strength. And while it seems at times that life is going awry, if we are devoted to you, we simply wait on you. That doesn't mean that we do nothing, but it means that while we may not know what the future holds, we know that you hold the future. We ask for your blessing upon our uh, Bible study this evening. We pray that we will continue to understand what you are teaching us from the book of Job. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. This evening, we return to the book of Job. We have completed most of the book, which, by the way, is no simple task because it is a difficult book. How many Bible classes have you been able to attend anywhere uh, on the book of Job? It's simply not a, a book that's often told, uh, not not often taught, but uh, often there are people who will refer to the book of Job. Uh, we are in the epilogue as we look at this slide. We are in Job 42. Job 42 begins with Job responding to the Lord's second speech. And we see that in Job 42, 1 through 6. And so the epilogue, the finishing epilogue, begins in verse 7, 7 through 9. And we have read verse 7, but we are pulling from verse 7 at least three principles uh, which we could easily turn into categorical uh, Bible doctrines. And we have done that uh, so far with the first part of verse 7. Uh, last week, we studied the first of the three subjects that I want to emphasize in Job 2.7. I plan to give just a quick review of, of the first uh, the first point that we wanted to make, or the first subject, uh, because that deals with God speaking. God speaking, presenting himself, making himself available to us. And as I was studying this week, uh, I actually had several people uh, contact me, send me some information and one of those uh, bits of information was in relationship to a comment I made. I'm not sure what the point, uh, what point that was, but several several years ago, there was a young boy who uh, supposedly died and went to heaven. And while he was there, he encountered Jesus, and he spent time with the Lord. The story and the subsequent book that was written, uh, I believe it was written mostly by his father, could have been others, but the story and subsequent book created a stir amongst the, the Christian community. But a few years later, this young boy retracted his entire experience. Uh, since then, there has been uh, at least one other book written and several articles written, but 
mostly people will remember and continue to use the the experience that he had as the truth. But one of the things we must remember is that his experience was was really contradictory to the word of God. And therefore, we must be careful not to define the Christian life by experience, but by the word of God. And when I say that, uh, someone might have a question, well, what do you mean by not defining the Christian life by your experiences? Isn't that part of your Christian life? And the answer is, yes, we do have experiences that are part of our spiritual life. But often we'll have an experience that seems to run counter to the word of God. And when we have that experience, we must realize that the word of God takes precedence. We may not be able to explain the experience, but if it runs counter to the word of God, then it is wrong. And we must be very careful with that. The last point that I have for that subject from last week was I said that we may not have the best explanation for those who say that God or Jesus appeared or spoke to them. But we can say with certainty that we do not believe that God has provided any new revelation since the Apostle the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation during the final years of the first century A.D. Uh, I want to make sure that I said the first century, not the first year, was the first century A.D. Um, and then finally, to close, the I actually began the, the doctrine or the categories by saying that the Lord spoke to Eliphaz. Well, as we close in a, sum, in a summary, the Lord said to Eliphaz, and that's Job 42.7. When we read that statement in Scripture and others like it, we should stop and realize the significance of it. God desires to communicate with us as well as Eliphaz, Job. I mentioned uh, Noah and uh, also Enoch. I could have mentioned Abraham and Moses. Moses, of course, heard uh, or saw the flame in a in a bush, but the bush was not was not being consumed. And so uh, Moses approaches the bush, and God speaks to him from the bush. We know that Abraham not only saw three men, but we learn later that one of them is uh, the angel of God. And so, and by the way, those three men fellowshiped and ate with Abraham. But all of this occurs prior to the canon of Scripture. And so God desires to communicate with us as well as those others. Throughout human history, he has revealed himself to us. And today, God speaks to us through his word, the completed 
completed canon of Scripture. All right. I wanted to make sure that we had those or that understanding, those concepts, uh, as we press on in verse 7. This evening, we will address the second subject that I wanted to address, and that is God's wrath. I've explained the wrath or, we could say, the anger of God uh, in previous, previous lessons, but it's important that we understand what God the Holy Spirit is teaching when we speak of God's wrath. So, first of all, let's read Job 42.7. We read this verse last week, but let's begin again in verse 7. And so it was, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz, Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So we've studied here, the Lord said to Eliphaz, and I said we shouldn't skip, we shouldn't move quickly over that. We should realize that God communicates with mankind and he wants to communicate with us. But now we have another phrase, and that is, my wrath is aroused against you. What do we mean by God's wrath? Uh, The question we might ask, uh, was God really angry with Job's friends? Was his wrath aroused towards Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar? How might that compare to his perfect love, his perfect happiness, and also his immutability. These are characteristics of God that we need to understand in order to understand the translations that we have in our English. These questions are difficult to answer if we do not genuinely understand the character of God. Prior to beginning a categorical categorical study of the wrath of God, we must review, first of all, the essence of God. Now, we've seen the essence of God, the ten attributes, several times in the past, but we'll review it one more time. The essence of God. The essence of God probably would be our first point uh, of a definition uh, of of our categories tonight. But the essence of God is critical because it gives us the foundation of who God is and also gives us a foundation for how we relate to him. First of all, we understand that God is sovereign. He is the sovereign God of the universe. There is no one uh, even in what we would probably say in the ballpark, it's not even in the state, not in the country where that ballpark is. So one of his characteristics is sovereignty. God is in control. Uh, that doesn't mean that he doesn't allow us to make 
decisions. But God's sovereignty extends beyond to what we probably can even begin to comprehend. Secondly, he is perfect righteousness. He is sinless. Uh, there is, uh, it is impossible for God to sin. He is righteousness. He is the standard, the perfect standard of what is right, what is proper. And those words fall a bit short, maybe, of what we think of as perfect righteousness. But God's perfect righteousness is addressed throughout the Word of God. It is the standard that we uh, desire to achieve. And, of course, we fall short. But the imputed right, uh, imputed, the imputed righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. And therefore, when God looks at the believer, he sees that righteousness and his righteousness is satisfied. We also say that he is perfect justice. God is perfect justice from the standpoint that he is he has never made a wrong decision in either blessing or in disciplining. Um, so he is perfect righteousness. And we very often say that the righteousness of God and the justice of God are two sides of the same coin. And we'll address uh, how that works as we as we move on. We also know that he is perfect love. Uh, God loves us. God loves his creation. God's love is secure. And very often people think that God uh, no longer either loves the earth, his creation, or individuals, but he even loves the unsaved. So God's love, again, is one of those uh, characteristics that is difficult for us to understand, but it is a standard that we try to achieve. He, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ's love is uh, our example, and we try to have a, a love for others that that provides the harmony between us. We also understand God as having eternal life. He is eternal. We often describe it as his eternality. Uh, he has no beginning. He has no end. We understand uh, human history as a beginning and having an end. God transcends that timeline. Uh, he was here prior to human history. He will be here long beyond it, or he'll certainly uh, accompany that, uh, that process which he has created. We say that God is omniscience. He is omni omnipotent. Or, uh, he is omniscient from the standpoint that he knows all there is to be known. Uh, there is nothing that God doesn't know. And we can uh, discuss this endlessly, uh, but God's knowledge 
is not simply of uh, the human race or creation, but it goes well beyond that. His omniscience is perfect. Every now and then, someone will uh, think that, well, maybe God is just a good uh, prophet. He's able to guess what's going to happen. No, that's that falls too short to even be discussed in any theological language, I think. God knows what's going to happen in the next second, in the next hour, the next week, the next month, the next year, thousands of years uh, ahead of us if there are, uh, depending upon how his plan works. God's knowledge is infinite. Omnipresence. God is everywhere. God is with us. He indwells us in the church age. And uh, his omnipresence is a form of uh, of uh, uh, encouragement to us. He is omnipresent. He is not absent periodically. He doesn't miss anything. He is here. He is everywhere. He knows what's happening. He is also om- omnipotent. His, we say the characteristic is omnipotence. He is all-powerful. God's power uh, allows him to do whatever he desires to do. And this isn't a question of can he do something that seems uh, contrary to his uh, character. And that's simply a question that should not be asked because God knows what he wants to do and he can do it. We also say that uh, he is truthfulness. We, we call that characteristic veracity. He is perfect truthfulness. So God is never wrong. Uh, that's blasphemous even to think of it. God's truthfulness is really the only standard of perfect knowledge and perfect truth. And so when we think of truth, we understand that only his truth, only divine truth, can be depended upon as uh, accurate. And of course, the word of God is God's word. So we have truth there, absolute truth. And then immutability. Once we have gone through uh, sovereignty, righteousness, justice, love, eternal life, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, veracity, we come to immutability. God is stable. He doesn't change. And that's one of the characteristics that we'll be expounding tonight as we study the wrath of God. If God is perfect happiness, if God is perfect love, then how do we um, work God's wrath into that equation? Uh, and we'll see how that, uh, how that works. All right. This is just our start here as we begin to study the wrath of God. But it's important for us to have this framework uh, as we begin this study. Okay, first of all, in Job 42.7, we see my wrath is aroused against you. I'm going to describe this 
as an anthropopathism. An anthropopathism is anthro, something that is a characteristic, a characteristic of the word here for man or for mankind. And then pathism is going to be emotions. So we have an emotion. And this emotion, we know, is prevalent throughout the human race. So an anthropopathism, as it applies to human, is well-known, well-documented. As a matter of fact, probably ongoing. But for God, how do we understand this? Well, the first point we have here, let me go back to that slide. Where was I? Here we are. Let's have a definition, a very simple definition. And our definition is here. And I've, I'm giving you two definitions, but they're almost exactly the same, with the exception that the first definition is for anthropopathisms, and the second definition is for anthropomorphisms. And if you have one, you essentially have the other. So an anthropopathism is attributing to God human emotional characteristics which he does not possess in order to communicate to humans the essence, the plans, and the policies of God. Now there's a lot there, but it's really a very simple definition what we're saying is that we assign to God certain human emotions in order for human beings to understand what God is doing. So an anthropopathism, and by the way, if you're listening to this uh, at a later time and not able to see the slide, this is A-N-T-H-R-O-P-O-P-A. T-H-I-S-M, anthropopathism. An anthropopathism is attributing to God human emotional characteristics which he does not possess. And therefore tonight, as we study the wrath of God, we'll see that God is not wrathful. But he is assigned these characteristics which he doesn't possess. And we do this in order to communicate to humans, the essence, the plans, and the policies of God. Now, anthropomorphism, A-T-H-R-O-P-O-M-O-R-P-H-I-S-M, anthropomorphism, is attributing to God human physical characteristics, which he does not possess. Again, in order to communicate to humans the essence, the plans, and the policies of God. So we have these two definitions which launches us into our quick study, I'd like to say, quick study of, of anthropopathisms and anthropomorphisms. All right. So we have a definition now. And I'm going to use a phrase called language of uh, language of accommodation. We use figures of speech, and that's really language 
that accommodates us as human beings. So language of of uh, language of accommodation means human characteristics as ascribed to God, which he does not have. So we accommodate ourselves, really, with language that helps us to understand God. But he doesn't have those characteristics. That's why we describe this as language of accommodation. It accommodates us as humans. So point two, language of accommodation means human characteristics ascribed to God, at, uh, characteristics he doesn't have. Now, I think I skipped a slide here, and that made that a little bit difficult here. Let me go back to our definition. Uh, this is an expansion on our definition. And this is where we use language of accommodation. So under anthropopathism and anthropomorphism, we have, first of all, language accommodation. That's what an anthropomorph, uh, an anthropopathism and an anthropomorphism, what they are individually. They are language of accommodation for human beings, figures of speech. Secondly, ascribing to God physical or emotional characteristics. Thirdly, which he does not possess, in order to, for, explain his essence, policy, acts, decisions, and point five, in terms of human anatomy or emotion. So uh, this is where I omitted this, uh, I guess you could say, sort of, uh, developed this definition. I embellished that definition and I've inserted language of accommodation. We accommodate ourselves as humans so that we can understand who God is and understand what he's doing. So language of accommodation ascribes to God physical or emotional characteristics which he does not possess in order to explain his essence, his policy, his acts or activities, his decisions in terms of human anatomy or emotion. Um, you say, I'm not sure I have a, a good grip of this. What do you mean human anatomy? Uh, he's uh, described as having eyes. Does God have eyes? Uh, no. God doesn't have eyes. He already just knows everything that's going to happen. He doesn't need to see it. Does he have ears to hear? No. Uh, does he have wings to fly? No. Does he have feet? No. So that's the human anatomy. And throughout the Bible, there it's attributed to God. Why? So we can understand who God is. And the same thing for emotion. Um, uh, and one of the those one of the emotions is anger or wrath. We could even say hatred. Uh, are those attributes that God has? No, no. But periodically, uh, those emotions are ascribed to God to help us to understand what's happening in that specific uh, occasion. Okay, so now I think I'm back on track. All right. So the language of accommodation means human characteristics ascribed to
to God, uh, that uh, human characteristics ascribed to God, he does not have. Sometimes, by the way, as I place these points on the slide, uh, I'm uh, a bit, uh, I truncate the uh, entire point, and sometimes it seems a bit as if it's not quite complete, but it's all there. Point three, explanatory examples. And really, the the one uh, example that I want to examine is 1 Samuel 15.10 and 29. That is going to be an example for us. 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. We're going to see King Saul. Make sure you go all the way to 1 Samuel. Don't stop in 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15 is going to give us the anthropopathism. And then we're going to see in subsequent passages, Malachi 3.6, Hebrews 13.8, and James 1.7 that tell us uh, how we should understand 1 Samuel 15.10. 1 Samuel 15.10. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, verse 11, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has not turned back, for he has turned back from following me. And it grieves, and it grieved Samuel. All right. Now, for the Lord to say, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, uh, what does that seem to mean to us as humans? If we regret something, That means we, in the past, uh, did something. We accomplished something. We made a decision and then maybe acted upon it. And then later, we look at that decision because of the situation in which we find ourselves and we say, I regret that I made that decision. God never finds himself in a situation where Something has gone wrong, something that he didn't anticipate. So if God knows what's happening in the future, then why would he regret something in the past? Well, the reason it's stated this way is so that we understand this. God does it. God knows what's going to happen, and everything he's done is according to his plan. Sometimes he directs it. Sometimes he allows it. But this is language of accommodation. All right. I greatly regret, we could say, I had a change of mind. God doesn't change his mind. But this helps us to understand the actions that God is taking. And then I also have 29 here. Verse 29. So he says, and this is Samuel speaking to Saul, he says, and also the strength of Israel. The strength of Israel here is Yahweh. This is God. The strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. By the way, it's the same word that we find over in verse 11, regret and relent. It's the same word. 
So we almost have what someone would say is a contradiction here. But it's not a contradiction. It's language of accommodation in both verses. He's not a man that he should relent. He, God, once he makes a decision, that's the way it's going to be. Now, uh, very quickly, let's take a look at, um, uh, well, let's look at Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament, just ahead of Matthew. So turn to Matthew and then back up to Malachi 3. Malachi 3, verse 6. Malachi 6, verse 3. I always try to give you a little bit of time to get there. For I am the Lord. I do not change. God doesn't change. He's immutable. We saw that. And here we are in, Ma- in Malachi 3, 6. Uh, the, uh, the Lord, Malachi expresses what the Lord uh, has said. Hebrews 13, 8. Hebrews 13, 8. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's where we're going in Hebrews 13, 8. Hebrews 13, 8 says... Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And James 1.17 tells us that, and that's just a page or two away, 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. All right, so this tells us, gives us a better idea of the characteristics of God. All right, let's move on. Four, God's character must be explained in human terms, frame of reference. It would be useless if we were to explain, write something that made no sense to us, that we could not understand. Therefore, God the Holy Spirit in writing the Word of God, knows the easiest way to communicate with us. Clarity of words. Um, We use figures of speech ourselves all the time because it helps us to clarify uh, something that we're saying. So God's character must be explained to us in human terms, in human frame of reference so that we can readily understand it, what what we're being told. Five, an anthropopathism ascribes human emotions to non-humans. So an anthropopathism is a human emotion. And we use it, I mean, we don't need to ascribe it to ourselves because we have those emotions. Happiness, uh, sadness, resentment, discouragement. We have those. But we'll very often ascribe a human characteristic to a tree or to an airplane or maybe to a rock, if you have a pet rock. Remember that fad that came and went? I'll hope that it'll never come back. So it's human characteristics that are applied to non-humans. It's the easiest way for me to say that. Six, God does not possess human emotional or physical traits. So God simply doesn't 
doesn't possess those. But in order for us to understand God's character and his activities, very often we are going to describe God in emotional and physical characteristics. Point seven, the purpose is to explain God's divine policy to mankind. So point seven, the purpose of this anthropopathism, and we could also, which is in Job 42, 7, the purpose is to explain God's divine policy to mankind. We will understand what is being said to Eliphaz much easier, much easierly, much easier if, in fact, the word wrath is used. Eight, humans are accommodated in order to understand divine action. So I'm saying these overlap, and very often the uh, concepts do overlap because that helps us to implant that indelibly in our mind. Humans are accommodated. We are accommodated. God doesn't need uh, to be accommodated here. We are accommodated in order to understand divine actions, understand what God is doing. Nine, we have a theological controversy. And I'm going to give you these two possibilities, passability or impassibility. Passability or impassibility of God. Passability meaning emotion or passion. Impassibility, not having passion. Now, passability, God is subject to or capable of passion or even suffering. Impassibility, God is not subject or capable of passion or suffering. And this, by the way, is a, a fairly significant theological controversy. And the reason it is is because human beings simply cannot understand a God whose love is not a passion or some other characteristic. But human love ebbs and flows. God's love doesn't. It's perfect. Now, I, having studied this in seminary and, well, not argued, let's just say having discussed this with other students and professors, the impassibility of God seems to me not to, what's the word I want here? It doesn't diminish the character of God. It strengthens the character of God because God is immutable. He doesn't change. He doesn't fluctuate up and down. He's not uh, passionate one time and another time not. He's not at one time suffering and another time not suffering. God's happiness is the same. And so I believe in the impassibility of God. God is just stable. The biblical basis of impassibility is God's self-sufficiency and immutability. So when someone just cannot understand how God could not have passions, it's because they have limited another characteristic of God. And that would be his perfect happiness, his perfect love, 
his immutability, his omniscience. If God knew thousands of years ago that something was going to happen that was going to cause him to suffer, he would have been suffering a thousand years. So the biblical basis of impassibility is God's self-sufficiency. He is self-sufficient. He has everything he needs and his life is stable and his immutability. Point 13. God is not dependent upon others for his attitudes, his happiness, his feelings, or his stability. God is not dependent upon others for his attitudes. Uh, many, if not most, humans' happiness is based upon someone else's love for them, their happiness, and their happiness is very unstable. It comes and goes. Uh, today, they're happy because the sun is shining. Tomorrow, they won't be because I don't know what the weather's doing tomorrow. But if it's... Uh, not shining, well, it's kind of a gloomy day. And they're kind of gloomy. If someone is upset with them, then they're upset. They don't have a stable mentality. And that's what we, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we strive to attain stability. We have that stability because of who God is and what he's doing in our lives. And we depend on him. And it may be a great day. It may be a poor day. It may be, uh, we may have just lost our, our job. Well, we wish we hadn't lost our job, but we don't lose our happiness because our happiness is in the hands of God. So God is not dependent upon others for his attitudes. God is never sad because of something that happens in the human race. He knew about it before time began. His happiness is always the same. He doesn't depend on someone's feelings or their stability. All right, point 13 concludes our study here of anthropopathisms and anthropomorphisms. Um, what I would like to do is we only have five minutes tonight uh, because when we return to Job, Job, seven, Job 42.7, I'm going to give us a, uh, a better understanding of what we mean by my wrath is aroused against you. So verse 7 says, And so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends. Therefore, after what we've just studied about God's character, the impassibility of God, uh, the stability of God, the perfect love of God, how do we uh, align his wrath with his character? And there are many theologians who struggle with this. I don't think it's that difficult. Uh, it'll take uh, us a little while for us to, first of all, do a little exegesis to find out what the word wrath really is, what that means, and also aroused. What is aroused here? What does that mean? I think you're going to be surprised. Um, if you like to do a little work ahead of time, go right ahead, because it's, uh, a matter of fact, it's almost uh, humorous. But 
uh, our editors, our translators, have interpreted the the language that we're going to see in my wrath is aroused against you. So let's we'll conclude uh, our study tonight, and I look forward to returning uh, next Wednesday night, and we will have an explanation of what this wrath of God, the the anger of God towards uh, Eliphaz, Beldad, and Zophar. Just what does that mean if God is perfect happiness? We'll see. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the text of Scripture. We are able to learn about the character of God. We're able to uh, read these verses, these passages, and even though it seems that the description that we have here of God seems to violate the character of God, there is a way for us to understand what is being said. And we're thankful that God the Holy Spirit can guide us uh, through these uh, passages as long as we have a fair, uh, we have a a firm understanding of the character of God. We pray, Father, uh, tonight as we began this evening with uh, a prayer meeting uh, as we try to uh, reestablish that corporate prayer. We pray that uh, we'll be able to develop that, that people will be able to work it back into their timeline, into their schedule, so that we can now begin to pray for those uh, in our congregation Uh, those out of the congregation, for those ministries, and also, Father, for the, uh, the nation as a whole. We ask for your blessing upon us. We're thankful again for this wonderful passage of Scripture. And we pray, Father, that if there's anyone who's hearing this message today or sometime in the future, if they're not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that they'll make that decision believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Redeemer, the person who went to the cross, paid for the sins of the entire world, and has given us the opportunity to have a relationship with you simply by believing in his finished sacrificial work on the cross. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.